You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yields rising on U.S. Treasuries, the rotation trade in U.S. equities, and, of course, the digital asset market, including red-hot NFTs. Raul, welcome back. It's been a few weeks since we've done one of these. I know. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Lots going on. Yes, lots going on. We were just talking a little bit uh, off-camera about all the things that are happening in markets right now, starting with U.S. Treasuries. Raul, what are your thoughts? Um. There is cyclical inflation pressure. I do not believe it's sec secular inflation pressure. I this is an I think this is passing and transitory, but we're going to get the brunt of the inflation numbers looking pretty strong over the next six months. Um, what that is leading to is obviously the market trying to reprice inflation risks. Yields, ten-year yields. I don't know where they are today. One sixty something uh, is the high end of the range. And we've seen that that has made the equity market wobble somewhat. It's also started to ignite the dollar. These things aren't good for the ongoing growth. The other thing most people don't understand about yields rising, it's not a matter of, oh, look, inflation's coming, yields need to go up. In a heavily indebted world, a rise in yields is actually a crimp on future expenditure. Because if, you, if your debt service costs go up, what happens is you spend less. And we saw that in 2018 when yields were up, growth started slowing pretty quick. Financial conditions tighten faster than people actually imagine because there's very little margin of room. You know, we're talking about yields going up too much and they've gone up from, you know, 80 basis points to 160. I mean, that shows us how little room we have in this heavily indebted world. So right. what happens from here? Well, the Fed either let yields continue to rise and the equity market cracks and the dollar goes higher, which pushes down emerging markets too and starts off the dollar wrecking ball, or they have to do something about it. I think there is almost no chance they can allow the, the yields to rise much further. Right. So they have two choices. One is operation twist, which is essentially to... Um, move their buying further out of the curve to alleviate pressure and hope it stabilizes rates. Possible. Or yield curve control. Yield curve control differs from quantitative easing in the fact quantitative easing is the, is a, is the Fed buying a limited amount of bonds at an unlimited price. I, they come into the market and say, we're going to buy $10 billion. Yield curve control is unlimited buying of bonds at a fixed price. I bonds any bonds that trade through X, we buy them all, which the Bank of Japan did, and the Australian Bank are doing, and the ECB are sort of doing. I think that is where we're going, because they cannot and do not want yields to rise because unemployment at structural level. People like David Rosenberg have been on the platform talking about, you know, if you take in non-farm. Um, the labor force participation rate and the unemployment rate, you've got an unemployment rate of about 
there is a structural unemployment. There's a lot of retail workers who are never going back to a job. There's a lot of people who are never going back to a job again. They're not trained for any other job. We don't have those jobs. Those jobs are being taken by the machines. Um, so we've, we've got a problem. Um, so overall, I think we're still in a very deflationary world. But if the Fed are forced to buy bonds in unlimited size, that is an unlimited expansion of the balance sheet. That goes hand in hand with the potential fiscal stimulus that may need to be monetized in some way. And maybe this is the mechanism by which the Fed monetizes that fiscal stimulus. Right. If that is the case and the balance sheet grows, I've shown this at length on Twitter and talked about it. It is the key denominator now of asset prices. The dollar is not the denominator. We should be using the Fed balance sheet. When you divide the S&P by the Fed balance sheet since 2008, the S&P is traded in a range, as has gold as has real estate, which is at the top end of the range, the equities are in the middle of the range, they basically offset the growth of the balance sheet. The only asset that's obviously done differently is Bitcoin, uh, and the Nasdaq's done slightly better. So therefore, if we see the Fed going to yield curve control, and this extra stimulus is coming, and maybe a stimulus package behind that, the chances are that equities will go higher. We've got the fiscal, the actual stimulus of people trading it as well. It's going to push a lot of assets higher again, which is asset inflation as opposed to CPI inflation, and things like Bitcoin get ignited yet again. So we're at a very interesting inflection point here, because if they allow yields to go further, they're going to slow the economy too fast. They can't raise rates, obviously, because they'll destroy the economy. They've said it's all about unemployment, so they have to stand true to their word. And the market's going to play a game of chicken with them. And they'll either crack the equity market or the dollar will crack the equity market. So we've got these three, this trifecta of things. Now, if the equity market falls, bond yields are going to fall. You know, it, there's an easing mechanism, but they're all fully stretched right now. So let's see how this plays out. Yeah, and it's such an important point, Raoul. Many people are just following the U.S. equity markets, but if you don't understand what's happening with the Fed and with fixed income, especially U.S. Treasuries, it's really hard to get your head around this. You know, to your point earlier, uh, it, YCC starts to look a lot like MMT as it gets implemented. And the important thing for people to realize about the Operation Twist that we've seen was that it was dollar neutral, so that the uh, buying uh, at the shorter end of the curve was offset by the twist to the longer end of the curve. If that regime changes, we're in a very different place. We are. And again, people will scream inflation because they always do. And the reality is, is we'll have yet more asset inflation and yet more wage deflation. And the world becomes much more expensive to invest in, which is the ongoing theme I've been talking about is wages are not keeping up with the rise in the price of assets that generate wealth. Right. So you cannot generate wealth if you're a median person because you can't own enough to represent a, a gain in wealth. So the rich get richer, the poor get relatively poorer, and this whole game continues. But it is a structural shift if we go to yet more of this, where, as you said, it's basically MMT through the back door. Right. And yeah. everybody's going to do it. Everybody. Yeah. Now, there's another broader thing, to, Ash, about this is, Another theme I've talked about here uh, on the daily briefing is the death of macro, of mm -hmm. traditional macro. If they're saying rates cannot rise 
and they don't really want them to fall below zero, even though I think they will do over time. Rates are basically pinned in a 200 basis point range. There is no trade to be done. There's no money to be made. They actually look like a cash instrument. And if I'm right that the central banks are also terrified of letting the dollar fall too far or rise too far, then they're going to basically keep the dollar in the range. It's been in the range for six years. So without the two biggest macro drivers of all, the dollar and rates, what do you have that drives assets? Those are the denominator of assets and the price of assets, interest rates and the dollar. Without those two functioning, what do we have? What is the anchor? The anchor is this Fed balance sheet. It's a crazy, crazily different world. But it becomes understandable when you change the denominator. By the way, we should say, uh, for people who are watching this, the catalyst for this conversation right now is that the story of March has been the rise uh, of rates from about uh, one spot 2% on the 10 to one spot 6 um, It's up 10 basis points from yesterday, uh, from 152 bips to 163 uh, about right now. We're sitting right here at the intraday high on the 10-year, which has been uh, about uh, one spot 626, and that's been going on for some weeks now. Yeah, I'm just looking on my Bloomberg screen now because to make it a bit more understandable for people, what it mean what it means is um, let's have a look. I'm looking at it in terms of percentage drops. So this year, the TLT is down 14 percent. So okay, that's a big move, but it's not that big. But that shows you how levered the system is. That if the TLT drops 15 percent, we're all freaking out. Yeah. You know, if an equity drops 15%, I mean, it's not abnormal. Right. This is the problem when you have a very levered world. Yeah. Is small moves have big effects. Yeah, especially uh, at low at low percentages because it's a higher percentage change. Uh, and when rates are moving as quickly as they are, really potentially significant impacts. And this is an argument I had back in um, when the Fed were raising rates back in 2017 or whatever it was. Is people like, but rates are so low. I'm like, you don't understand. They've gone up like two or three hundred percent. It's one of the fastest changes of rates in history. And people said that's nonsense. It's the low level of rates. I then get a phone call from a family office friend of mine. He goes, Do you understand our financing costs have gone up 150% in the last six months? Right. He said, We have a lot of leverage. He said, and suddenly we're having to reduce risks because we can't afford the 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 cost of financing. My mortgage payments went up last time around, and this is a very well documented on Real Vision. I talked about it a lot. My mortgage payments went up significantly because of that, um, and as did everybody else's. And suddenly, that takes you know money away from your spending, and so th- it's an issue. It's an issue if the Fed want to keep the economy growing, they need to either contain inflation or just stamp out and pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Absolutely crucial point. Absolutely crucial point. By the way, Ralph, I should say one of my favorite parts about this show it's the only show. I ever see someone go, hold on a second, let me check. Let's think this through, right? <laughs> Never see that anywhere else. 
Yeah, well, that's that's the joy of being real vision, right? Yeah. Uh, Ralph, let's talk a little bit uh, about U.S. equities uh, and the rotation from growth to value. I saw a really interesting number earlier today, uh, a chart showing the Russell 1000 value against the Russell 1000 growth. Russell 1000 value up 10% year to date. Russell 1000 growth uh, was minus 5% earlier in March, now flat. So obvious rotation here from uh, growth to value. Yeah, I mean, the last time I saw this rotation, not to set any alarm bells off, was 2000. Um, it was a very clear rotation then for the same thing. People juiced the end of the rally. But it feels like, I can't get my head around it, it feels like the equity markets feel like the end of a bubble phase. Yet we're just at the start of an economic cycle. Right. Get your heads around that. Um, and then it's this conundrum that I've been fighting with. Right. Why do I think it's the end of a speculative blow off while it's the beginning of a business cycle that those things do not happen? Right. And that's why I started changing and looking at it in terms of the Fed balance sheet and suddenly it looked normal. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking, do I have even the metrics right any longer? What is interesting is the value versus growth. You know what the key driver is? I think the dollar. Because when I look at the NASDAQ against the dollar, they're basically the same chart. Mm. So saying the dollar goes up, these big tech earners are earning less dollars, and so therefore um, their earnings go down. Some mechanism that the market is discounting this. So maybe the value versus growth is just the dollar story. And that's the joy about macro is the complexity of the different factors. But usually in the background, somewhere, the dollar is lurking. The dollar is the big daddy, 88% of world trade, the thing that we benchmark and measure everything in. And when the dollar goes up, when nobody's expecting it, 100% of forecasts on Bloomberg of every single investment bank in the world had the dollar lower this year. Usually when that happens, they're going to be wrong. So, <laughs> you know, the average for the dollar range over the last six years is, I mean, it's a, just a clear average line of oscillates is 96 and the dxy is wherever it is now 90 or something so there's room for it to move maybe it doesn't go a long way but it just moving enough stops the equity market dead in its tracks um and maybe that's driven by yields again there's this trifecta approach but it's it's usually yields and the dollar that are the most important things of all yeah, and of course, those are related. The conventional wisdom is probably that discounting cash flows uh, on high growth stocks uh, become less favorable uh, as rates rise. But the dollar, obviously, also very much a factor and correlated uh, to some extent uh, in different ways to rates. That's right. And uh, the dollar is what's known as Bayesian in its distribution approach, which means that generally it's a multi factor variant that that applies at any one stage so sometimes it's rates that make the difference other times it's flows other times it's m a other times it's inflation and it moves around it's not a simple thing like bonds which is basically economic growth which drives exp uh, expectations of inflation or not and a bit of speculative activity that's basically it in treasuries so they're really pure you really understand what they're representing so they're now kind of saying the economy is going to go run hotter, so rates go up. Simple. The dollar is not simple. The simple thing of all is we, we're so used to a, you know, a dollar bill, and it's a simple thing for us. That's how we make payments. But to actually forecast it is incredibly complex, which is why most people end up <coughs> using technical analysis as the only way of actually figuring it out, because it's too complex. 
Yeah. yeah. And speaking of which, you know, we have all of these new variables in the equation, another $1.9 trillion in stimulus. I mean, this is significant in terms of the percentage of overall GDP. Yeah, it's huge. And what's interesting, again, it's coming in checks. And those checks we've seen either get saved or punted in the markets. Um, and that's interesting to see whether that goes. There's a suspicion of many, and I hold that suspicion considering as I've said, the supermassive black hole of crypto is basically destroying returns of everything else. You know, Bitcoin's up almost 100% this year. Nothing comes close. So I think the probability is of crypto getting a large part of the speculative activity of those checks is pretty high. I've been trying so hard, Raul, not to talk, talk about crypto during right. the first 15 minutes because it always sucks the air out of the room. You and I both love having that conversation. Yes, and again... The point being is that it is outperforming every asset class on earth. It's not because I love it because it's new and shiny. It's because it makes everything else look pointless. I simply don't care about value versus growth. Oh, look, there's a 10% return that could have been had had I timed that right. I can buy and hold Bitcoin and make 100% and it's barely the middle of March. This is what I've been trying to pound the table about that at this phase in the crypto cycle, nothing else matters. And, and that does not change. Um, it doesn't change on a dime. We've got a wall of money that's coming in. And so everybody needs to be focused. And I'm sorry, there's a bunch of you like, I don't like this new digital stuff. It's bullshit. Why doesn't Raoul talk about interest rates? Because frankly, I don't care because they don't generate any money for me. You know, shorting the bond market was still not the same return as just holding Bitcoin. Buying the dollar, not the same return. Buying copper, not the same return. Buying oil, not the same return. Buying the NASDAQ, not the same return. Nothing has had the same return. So why even do it? Because I think the risks have been, um, um, the risk adjusted returns are good. Now, again, I always say the same caveat. By the time you get this, crypto is probably selling off again, and it probably sells off another 20%, and then it goes up another 50%. That is the nature of the beast. Um, but my, what a beast it is. Yeah. Ralph, $64,000 question or maybe $1.1 trillion question. How do you sort out the price action in terms of sentiment, momentum versus a true macro play uh, where people are viewing this uh, as an inflation hedge? I don't. It's everything. It's everything. It's adoption. It's institutions. It's a parallel financial system where people are slowly migrating from old to new, which is probably the best way of thinking of it. Um, it is a sentiment play because it's part of a behavioral cycle, a reflexive loop. It is some beautifully, beautiful maths driven by things like stock to flow models. There is a seasonality of a mysterious origin that seems to play out too. There is the technical analysis that gives the behavior of crowds. All of these things are all in this. And it actually has some purity to it um, that is understandable to me. Um, and it seems to work and it seems to be a great instrument to it to trade and invest in. You know, there are, and I've talked about this before, hedge funds that are making 300% returns trading this long and short. 
The yeah. source of alpha is gigantic. So again, I, I know I keep bringing this stuff up and up and up because I feel like it's my duty to tell people that there is a life raft to this broken financial system that you and I spent the first part of the show talking about. It's a parallel universe and you can step out of one into the other. One is a world of pessimism. Where is this going to go wrong? What are the Fed going to screw up? How's the banking system going to break? How are taxes going to go up? How bad can this get? Is the equity market a bubble? You go to the other world and it's optimism. It's macro optimism in this parallel world where you can opt out of the other one. And here it's about what can I build on this? What developments are going on? How amazing is that? Is that project going to succeed or fail? I don't know, but it looks interesting. Let's watch it. You know, where is this all going to lead to? How are they going to figure out a yield curve? Where is Bitcoin going to do? What is the size of the adoption? Are they going to sort out the um, uh, transfer of payments from third world countries, remittances? How is it going to work when you and I are going to pay each other instantaneously? Are people going to be streaming money over watching videos in the future just for their attention span? Am I going to get paid to watch video or watch an advert? All of these things are actually happening in yeah. this parallel world where the individual gets the power and not the institution. And so I know I talk a lot about it, but literally there is a migration going on. This Noah's Ark is not going away. It's not something to do with tether. It's not some noise about, you know, did Binance, are they going to get fined? It's not some noise about, oh, NFTs, are they a bubble? You're missing the big picture. The entire digital value system is being created in front of your eyes. The system of money means that it is a land grab of epic proportions where huge money is going to be made because you're transferring the ownership of the monetary system from one group of hands to another group of hands and then creating new monetary systems that never existed before. So, that is, so this is nothing to do with Bitcoin versus Ethereum or are NFTs a bubble or should I adopt Bitcoin? What weighting in my portfolio? This is something so big. I, I, I keep trying to express it for people. I keep coming at different ways, trying to tell people over here, guys, this is where the new world is. They've discovered America over here. You can go and get that Californian real estate right now if you want it. You can even take Manhattan. And meanwhile, they're going, oh, I'm going to stay here in my Bavarian village and watch the world go by. You know, Europe never saw the United States coming. This is what's going on. A new world is being built. So that is why I keep talking about it. Rob, before we talk about that new world, some of the things that are happening right now, because it's been an interesting couple of weeks, I'm curious, uh, you're unreasonably long. We know you're unreasonably long. You love saying Irresponsibly that. Irresponsibly is the word. Irresponsibly long, yes. You have the t-shirt, I believe. And it's in the Real Vision merch shop. So if anybody wants irresponsibly long t-shirts, grab them. They're going like hotcakes and they're fantastic. <laughs> I wear mine all the time. <laughs> I teed that up rather well unintentionally. You did. I want to sell some T-shirts. So go, go buy some T-shirts. Get the movement going, gang. <laughs> so being that being the case, tell us how you think about your own asset allocation, because that is such a critical question about how you think about that balance. And I'm really curious to hear. So again, I have a unique balance, as we all do. My balance is everything for me is a lifestyle 
um, is lifestyle credits. I, I want to have the best quality lifestyle that I can have. And that to me is, you know, my home life, you know, the, the quality of environment that I live in. And um, do I have high quality income streams so I can always, you know, pay my bills. Um, and outside of that, and I'm very lucky to be in a good situation. And outside of that, you have excess savings, which is your investment portfolio, your cash. And I stick the whole fucking lot into Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a few tokens. The whole lot. I mean, every single penny I've got. Um, and, you know, I don't usually run large cash balances generally because, you know, I, I have a home and all, I have all the things that I need. And I, I, I like that. I don't need the cash for a lot of things. But in this instance, I need the cash to buy as much of this future world as I possibly can. And this is the right point in the cycle to take maximum risk. As I've mentioned before, I've looked at a lot of people and there's very few people who've made their money from short-term trading. Mm. There's very few people who've made their money from a diversified portfolio. Real money is made from concentrated risk-taking when you have done all of your homework and you're utterly confident with the risk-reward. You understand the risk that you're taking. You understand that I don't use leverage. Um, you understand what you can lose. You've got a game plan. You're taking into account all the available information. You know what to discard so you don't scare yourself out. But you listen to people who have criticisms so you can take them on board and keep continually reassessing your hypothesis. Um, and I've never done this before. It's the first time I've ever done this. But I've waited for that opportunity my whole life. Wow. That's a, quite an impressive statement. Hmm. It's true. Yeah. So talking about this brave new world, I've, we've managed to hold off for 20 minutes. Every person I've spoken to in the last uh, few weeks who's excited about crypto uh, in some aspects has been talking to me about NFTs. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, so I'm not going to tell you about the Brave New World because everybody's going to watch a video that I made <laughs> that is on the crypto gathering that there's a trailer being made of just my face listening to the guy speak. <laughs> and my face is like <laughs> just incredulous about what he was telling me. And it wasn't like, oh, this is where I think the world is going in the future. This is like, okay, these are the things that are going on that you probably have no idea about. Yeah. And I'm not going to ruin any of that. So you will then get an understanding of how ridiculous. And we didn't even talk about the finance space. It wasn't even about finance, but it was all about crypto and digital assets. Yeah. So that's to show you the finance world is massive. This whole rest of it is massive. So NFTs. NFTs basically are a single token attached to one asset, generally a digital asset, but not necessarily so. Right. We broke records uh, day before yesterday with a $69 million piece of art. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's digital. It's worth nothing. You can re rep replicate it. It's. I'm like, God, people don't get anything. Everybody is so reticent to understand change. They only want to benchmark it to the past. Right. What is a painting? A painting is a bunch of paper or canvas with some paint 
and a fucking massive margin on top. <laughs> a digital... <laughs> a digital... And the more renowned you are as a painter, the larger your margin is. That's it. That is all it is. But people ascribe value because they like the painting and they like the the artistic skill set that you bring, and they pay for that. That's right. your margin. In the digital world, it's identical. People go, oh, 69 million, this is ridiculous. Has anybody even looked at that piece of art? It's 5,000 pictures right. built every day over 14 years. Yep. It's somebody's learning journey of digital art, basically documenting the whole digital art of the internet. It's extraordinary as a piece of art. And did it trade at too high prices because it's an NFT? No, it traded at too high prices because it's priced in Ethereum. <laughs> and it is moving around versus Ethereum. It's not a dollar-based instrument. That's one key point. Secondly, it is not out of realm with other pieces of contemporary art. Damien Hirst has sold a lot of art, which was not considered a few years ago art for similar kinds of prices. But, and everybody rebelled, much like Picasso they rebelled against, which was a different medium on canvas. Then we saw Dali using even video, and everyone's, this is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It has value. Then we saw the rise of photographic art. Everyone's like, what's the point? You could just copy it. Guess what? If it's signed or you have the negative, you own the original. Guess what? That's appeared in books too. You find me a first edition book that's signed by the author. It's worth a million X the price of the 78th edition in paperback. <laughs> They're not the same thing. People like to own scarce assets. Right. If you own the NFT of this piece of extraordinary art, it's whatever you value it at. Now, maybe next time it trades, it trades at 30 million bucks, but it ain't going to trade at 10 million bucks. We've seen this with Monet's. We've seen it with all art. Sometimes there's a fad. A lot of art gets overpriced. It comes back down again. Over time, it goes up. Yeah. It goes up because of the Fed balance sheet. So scarce assets anchor pricing. Yeah. So it is amazing you're creating an economy now for people to monetize to different people artwork and the kings of leon put music on what that what why that what is this about what is this token about too it well the token was slightly different for the for the beeple piece but for the kings of leon is they now own the copyright to their piece and you can sell it with rights around right. it benefits the question they're exploring is, do I need a middleman? I've got a community. Why don't I just deal directly with the community? Right. This is groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking what's going on. Soon, now Beeple has established this. They do not need Christie's to, to auction the art. Goodbye, Christie's. It's all over. Yeah. You just need a digital exchange to do it on at a fraction of the cost. This is what's actually going on. It's not about the art. It's about the mechanism of a new digital world that destroys middlemen for lunch in everything it touches. That is incredible. And it empowers 
artists with a higher share of the revenue. I interviewed RAC uh, and a, a yeah. Grammy award-winning songwriter um, and cool digital native guy who runs token communities, all sorts of stuff. He's up for his second Grammy this week. Um, you know, he, he talks about a lot of this stuff. Is it's The music industry takes 80% of his revenues. Hmm. 80%. That is a very juicy thing for technology to disrupt because yeah. music is massive. Yeah. You know, with digital art, to people who are highly skeptical of the idea that there's something that's real called digital scarcity, that, that's sort of like believing uh, that as soon as you could produce uh, Van Gogh's sunflowers uh, on print for 20 bucks and it hangs in every dorm room uh, in America, that somehow the original would be worth less. In fact, what we've seen is exactly the opposite. The original becomes worth more and the scarcity value becomes higher. That's a great point. The more people like something and want it and have it on their screensaver saying, ha ha, I've got that piece of art, same as the other guy, the more valuable the original is because there is only right. one. Because there's only one. Here's another aspect of this that I find absolutely fascinating that we're just beginning to explore right now. Let's say, for example, kind of a silly metaphor, but let's say, for example, uh, you're here in New York and it turns out that Jack Farley is an incredibly talented amateur painter, uh, in addition to being a rising star here he's, at Real Vision. Okay, I'll just go with he's an amateur, but other than that. <laughs> That's the hypothetical, Rob. We're just buying into the hypothetical. He's an amateur painter, right? Okay, and yeah. you see one of his pieces, and yeah. you say, this is absolutely terrific. And he says, I'll give it to you. And you say, no, no, no. I'm going to give you $1,000 for it. You're an incredibly talented artist. You take the painting, he takes the $1,000. Both sides are very happy. Now, Jack is inspired by this, and he decides he's never going to look at the bond market again. He moves down to the- Which is probably a good thing. I get it, yeah. Probably a good thing for, uh, for Jack. I don't know about it for the world. Uh, he goes down, and he becomes an incredibly successful painter. A decade from now, one of your hedge fund friends sees an original Jack Farley hanging in your home, and he offers you a million dollars. You sell it to him. Jack gets zero, right? Jack gets zero. The amazing value proposition in digital tokens is the ability to retain some aspect of the rights in perpetuity for the content creator so that you can continue to participate in the upside of that valuation forever. We've never seen anything like this in the art market. You know, 150 years ago, going back to when the art market arose in London and Paris, totally novel. Yeah, totally agree. It's... Uh... Again, it's giving all of this, if you hear and listen carefully, strip out all of the noise you hear, what we're doing is going from a concentrated economy to a distributed economy where individuals get the power over their own economics. Yeah. And people get power over their own communities and they don't need to rent Facebook or Google's platforms to do it. it, right. it this is a wholesale gigantic change. It's the one we've all wanted. And as soon as it turns up, everyone goes, oh, I don't trust that stuff. Oh, God, no, it's a bubble. I mean, really, guys? Do, do you honestly not realize that, sure, in an early phase, you're going to get speculative cycles, but everything everybody's been asking for. I don't like the Fed. I don't like the banks. I don't like the centralization. I don't like Google. I don't like Facebook. I don't like my data being kept. I don't like being monitored. Well, come over here, guys. The new world. It's all, it's all here. Oh, no, don't trust that. I'm like, really? What do you want? <laughs> they don't Those like the problems. 
And they don't like the solution either. No. <laughs> I'll tease one really quickly as well. Uh, Kevin Chow, uh, the uh, CEO of Rally, uh, was on with me a couple of days ago, going to be coming out fairly soon. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. I've got a friend of mine who's actually speaking to him. I need to send him that video. So, yeah. It's, an, it's incredible. His view, and it all starts with esports, otherwise known as gaming, this idea that the digital world is a real place that has value and scarcity. It has work. It has compensation. Digital ecosystems springing up in places where you have content creators and content consumers. And now, fascinatingly, service providers in the middle getting paid in the native token of the ecosystem they exist in. This is something we've never seen before. Again, valuations. There could be uh, there could be boom and bust cycles in this, but the idea, the underlying premise of the kinds of new digital economies that this powers, absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to talk about this because I talk about this in length in that special video. <laughs> it is mind blowing. There are whole digital worlds going on where people are earning a living, generating yield, having productive activity that doesn't exist in the physical world yeah but the money is transferable it's extraordinary so again we'll wait for the video at the crypto gathering so anybody watching this you better watch the crypto gathering because again we're talking of the future we're talking about something thing and this wasn't supposed to be a plug for the crypto gathering but i've been having a lot of really big conversations that have really really structured my thinking in a way that i now can't express how big this all is the more i learn you know, rally is another whole conversation I can have about communities, community tokens, that is, again, a huge game changer. Um, but the crypto gathering, we've got a lot of these people coming, um, all sorts of aspects of the space from regulators to the most mind blowing music stuff to NFTs to Bitcoin maximalists to Ethereum projects to DeFi. I mean, if you want to know what's going on, come along to this event. It is going to be the biggest event in crypto. I know people say that all the time, but it literally will have more people than any other event in the history of crypto attending. So it's going to be huge. And, and the amount of learning to be had is going to be a lot, a lot. And it should be a lot of fun as well. Yeah, very well said. Uh, Raul, we could have this conversation for the next four hours. But so our Real Vision colleagues can have dinner at a reasonable hour with their families. What are your final thoughts as you process uh, everything that we've talked about here today on the macro side, on the digital asset side, and in terms of uh, what you're going to be thinking about as the weeks go by? Yeah, well, I'm, my entire focus is on one thing right now, is tomorrow I get on a liveaboard dive boat and I go diving around the three Cayman Islands for a week and my phone isn't going to work most of the time and I'm going to be underwater where it's definitely not going to work. I'm going to be hanging out with the groupers and the sharks on the beautiful clear water of the Cayman Islands getting some well-deserved rest. Well done. I won't be slacking you. I won't be answering you. <laughs> well, thanks as always for joining us. Everyone have a great weekend and I'm sorry you can't join me diving, but at least have a rum and think of the Caribbean. Take care. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.